0: This is a reading from Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verses 8 through 18. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, and an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity be joyful, and in the day of adversity consider, God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that, without not withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. This is the word of the Lord. You, God. Days, right?
1: yeah. I am I am not a tall man.
0: Forgot to put it back in it's
1: all right. Um, Thomas Boston uh, was a Presbyterian pastor of a little country church in Scotland in the 1700s. Uh, He was known to be a a great preacher of God's grace in Christ, and he was also a man who suffered tremendously. Of the ten children that were born to Thomas and his wife, uh, six of them died in infancy and one loss was especially tragic. They had already lost a son whose name was Ebenezer. In the Bible, Ebenezer means thus far the Lord has helped us. Uh, when his wife was expecting another child, they considered naming this new baby Ebenezer also, if he was a boy. And, and they were thinking about doing that because naming uh, this new baby Ebenezer would be a testimony of their trust in the faithfulness of God. But they wrestled with this decision because they, it occurred to them, well, what if, this, what if this child dies also and they have to bury another Ebenezer? That would, that would be a loss too bitter to bear. Hmm. Um, but they wrestled with it, they prayed about it, and they reflected on it, and they did decide to name the baby Ebenezer, trusting that the Lord would reward their faith. So another Ebenezer was born, and then uh, a few short months later, this Ebenezer got sick. And they prayed and they prayed, uh, but this baby died too. Another Ebenezer taken from them. I wonder, family, how you would handle that. There, there really aren't words for such grief. But we get a little window into Thomas Boston's heart and mind a few years later. He preached a sermon that was later published as a little book. The name of the sermon was The Crook in the Lot. The Crook in the Lot. And it's based on verse 13 of our passage. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what God has made crooked? Crook in the lot. By lot, Thomas Boston meant the circumstances that you are given. By crook, he means uh, a bend, a twist, a broken path. Like, what do you do when there's a crook in your lot? What do you do? What do you do when your life is uh, is not the way you want it to be at all. Like, the life that you have just isn't the life that you want when it's full of trouble, hardship, adversity, when its dominant note is suffering. What do you do when there's a crook in your lap? It's not likely, but maybe some of you are living, like, pretty carefree, suffering-free lives right now. If so, Kohelet would say, "Uh, just give it a minute. (laughs) Like, sooner or later... All of us have to face the befuddling, broken experiences that a world of Hebel brings. Heartache, sickness, chronic pain, depression, anxiety, betrayal, broken relationships, failure, sin, bereavement, sorrow, loneliness, aging, and death. Like, remember, uh, this is not Barbie land. Uh, This is the world as it actually is. And Kohelet has been showing us week after week that it is Hebel. It's it's confusing. It's perplexing. It's absurd. uh, It's baffling. Uh, It is just a downright enigma. So at least indirectly, uh, all along we have been addressing the topic of suffering a lot in this series. But today, uh, we want to just look at it straight on. Look again at verse 15. Kohelet says this. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. And so this is a theme that Kohelet has um, brought up before. He, sees, he, he looks out over the world. He sees people who uh, are trying to live a good life, and things go horribly wrong for them. And, and, and meanwhile, he also sees wicked people who don't seem to care about living a good life at all. They don't seem to care about God. They don't seem to care about justice. Uh, and they prosper. They live into old age. And, and so he's pointing out again that life isn't fair, that life is crooked, that there is a crook in our lot, and this is Hebel. And, and it's, it's the fact that so much of it feels nonsens- nonsensical and unpredictable and painful. There doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason. and And how do we handle it? What do you do when there's a crook? In your lot. Uh, Kohelet tells us a lot in our passage about what doesn't work. So let's look at some of that first. Um, when you see all the suffering and oppression and injustice and when you realize that you and everyone you love is going to uh, suffer in life and then eventually die, um, one way we might try to respond to this reality is um, by retreating from reality, by trying to escape from reality. Escapism can take a lot of different forms, and Kohelet identifies several in our passage. Um, first, uh, there's, there's kind of the escapism of self-indulgent distraction. Remember in the early chapters of the book, Kohelet tried a lot of this. He tried just pursuing pleasure, and work, and money, and wealth. And, and all of these can be a way to try to escape from the pain and suffering of life. Um, you can party as hard as you can. You can work yourself to the bone. You can take like all kinds of amazing vacations as you can afford. You can laugh as loud and as often as possible. You can drink yourself into oblivion. You can buy yourself stuff that keeps you constantly distracted. Kohelet calls this here the way of the fool. He calls it being overly wicked, which is, uh, kind of a weird way of saying, like, just live for yourself. Forget God entirely. Embrace this nihilistic, meaningless, and me-centered lifestyle. We can try to escape the reality of suffering by way of foolish distraction. Um, but there are other forms of, of escapism. Look again at all of these kind of pithy proverbs early in our passage. In, in each of them, Kohala is identifying uh, more sophisticated forms of escapism. He says, "Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit." So, so here he's putting his finger on the problem of impatience. Um, can you think of a recent time that you were impatient? Impatient? No, not Scott. Uh, for me, it's not hard because I I like to be punctual and uh, timely. Yeah, <laughs> and. Uh, Libby and the boys, well, not so much. I mean, they're just, they have a different relationship with time than I do. They, they never seem as concerned about um, being on time as I do. And so it's easy for me to get impatient when Libby or one of the boys is making a sleep. Um, but <laughs> what's really going on with impatience? Uh, it's a way of saying like, I'm unwilling to accept my reality as it currently is, and I want to rush forward into the future. Um, I, I, want, I want to rush forward to the way I want things to be. And, and you see, that is a form of escapism. Um, an author named David Gibson puts it like this, impatience is a way of escaping reality and wishing things were different than they really are. Like, I, I wish that I were always on time, and so I'm constantly impatient with people who I love. Um, so, so that's one form of escapism. Maybe you can identify that in your life. Here's another form. Look at verse 9. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. And so similar to impatience, anger can be a sign of kind of an escapist spirit. Like very rarely is our anger righteous. We like to tell ourselves that it is, but very rarely is it righteous. More often than not, our anger is provoked when something is not happening the way we want it to happen. Uh, it's a form of rejecting reality as it is and demanding that it be something else the way I want it to be. So again, David Gibson says it like this. Anger is a way of escaping your inability to cope with things not being the way you want them to be. Um, does anger ever help with suffering? Like, no, not really. Um, what's the verse uh, What's the verse that says, like, your anger does not bring about the righteousness of God? Where is that? James 1. Um, yeah, like, Our anger never really makes anything better. We like to think it will, but it usually doesn't. It often just makes suffering worse. Now look at verse 10. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. So impatience is wanting to rush forward into the future to escape reality by moving forward. Here, Kohelet's putting his finger on um, nostalgia. Maybe you've, maybe you've said or, or thought something similar. Like, things were so much better back in the good old days. Right? Like, why is the world getting so bad? Like, I'm sure glad that I don't have to raise my kids in the world as it is today. I wish I could, like, wind back the clock. Maybe you've, you've thought that or said that. Like, there is an assumption that the past was better than the present, and then there's, desire, there's a desire to flee from the trouble of today by somehow retreating, if only in our minds, Uh, to the good old days, and Kohelet says um, that this is, like, profoundly unwise. Why is it unwise? Well, for one thing, uh, it's just kind of willfully ignorant of all of the evil that was in the past, and for another, it's willfully blind to the good things that are in the present, but maybe worst of all, nostalgia just gives up on the faithfulness of God. Like, was God faithful in the past but not faithful today? Or is Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever? Um, to ask the question of verse 10, why were the former days better than these, is, is to kind of leave God out of the picture. So nostalgia is another form of escapism. Um, the big point of all of this is that uh, none, of, none of these options, the, the foolish distraction, the impatience, the, the anger, the nostalgia, none of it actually helps with suffering doesn't make suffering any better. These are just foolish forms of escapism. Well, if escaping reality doesn't work, what about uh, explaining reality? Maybe we can understand our way out of the pain and hardship that life brings. In the face of suffering, maybe we can find the reason for it. Or maybe we can pinpoint the purpose of it. But no, family, uh, look again at verses 16 and 17. Not only does Kohelet advise us against being over-wicked, he also advises us against being over-righteous or over-wise. Now, that's, a, that's kind of a weird thing to say. We think that you would want to be just as righteous as you can be and as wise as you can be. What is, what is Kohelet talking about? Well, I think what he's getting at is, is something that we see happen in the story of Job. If you know the story of Job, you remember that he had several friends who turned out um, not to actually be the best advisors. Job was suffering terribly, horribly, in all sorts of ways, and Job's friends kept trying to explain to him why he was suffering. They said, maybe you did something wrong, or maybe you've, maybe you've done something wrong unknowingly. Maybe you've sinned against God and you just haven't realized it. Or maybe, maybe it was your kids who did something wrong. Um, they kept proposing reason after reason to explain the suffering that Job was going through, and, and they were being overrighteous. See, they were being overwise. They thought they knew why suffering had come into Job's life, and they thought they knew exactly how Job should respond to that suffering. And, and that's a temptation, I think, for all of us. We think if we, can just, if we can just understand reality well enough, if we can just know why things happen the way they do, then our lives will feel a little less scary. We'll have a bit more control over our chaotic existence. But remember what happens in Job's story. Uh, Eventually, God himself enters into the conversation, and uh, he rebukes Job's friends. Remember, earlier in Ecclesiastes, Kohelet has already dismantled the futility of trying to explain the suffering and the absurdity of the world. Like, things just don't work out the way we think they should. The healthy guy gets cancer when he's 30, and the guy who vapes nonstop and eats nothing but corn dogs, like, he lives to be 80 or more. And the kid who has the best parents in the world goes off the rails, while the kid whose parents aren't so great at all ends up like this superstar, and none of this makes any sense. Kohelet concludes, our formulas for life are never all that reliable because life is evil. It's absurd. The world is baffling. Things never turn out the way... Uh, our rules and formulas promise that they will. In other words, there is a crook in our lot. There is something about the nature of our world that is so warped and so broken and so bent that no amount of rules and formulas and principles is going to set it right. Um, People like to say, and um, I've probably said this, although I don't think I've said it in a while, uh, but maybe you've said this, that everything happens for a reason. Everything happens for a reason. Um, Kate Baller, she's a, uh, she's a Christian author who um, has lived with life-threatening cancer for years and years. And she says this in response to that phrase, everything happens for a reason. She says, the only thing worse than saying this is pretending you know the reason I've had hundreds of people tell me the reason for my cancer. Because of my sin. Because of my unfaithfulness. Because God is fair. Because God is not fair. Because of my aversion to Brussels sprouts. I mean, (laughs) she she writes, I mean, no one is short of reasons. When someone is drowning, the only thing worse than failing to throw them a life preserver is handing them a reason. And Kohelet would say, yeah, that's right, Kate Ballard. Kohelet says, yes, that is right. There is so much in life that just does not make sense. It doesn't make sense. It's, it's, it's futile to try to look for a reason when life is hebel. Uh, so, so there's an invitation for us to stop acting like it does make sense, to, to stop being over-righteous, to stop being over-wise. Kohelet shows us that when it comes to suffering, escaping reality doesn't really work. Doesn't really help with the suffering because you can't escape reality. Usually, our attempts to escape reality just make the suffering worse. Um, neither does explaining reality help. So, what does he offer instead? Well, what he offers um, is an invitation to embrace reality. Uh, look again at verse 14. In the day of prosperity, Kohelet says, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. He's saying, uh, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when suffering hits or when things don't go the way they're supposed to go. Don't be surprised, family, when there's a crook in your lot. Like in our privileged, affluent environments, it's so easy to assume that whenever something is painful, uh, something is wrong. Kohella would, would challenge that assumption. He would just say, um, life is hard. It's hard. Life is full of suffering, and uh, it will have both good days and it will have bad days, and that's reality. That's reality. And so instead of living in the, in the past or trying to control the future, what Kohela is saying is learn how to embrace the present day and the present moment, whatever God happens to bring into it. So look at verse 14. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? See, you can't. His, his point is you can't fix this. You can't make it straight. Like somehow God has allowed this circumstance to occur, and, and you'll never know why. This is Kohelet. You'll never learn, know why. And so learn to rest in the mystery and trust that God's ways are higher than your ways. And that's what Kohelet can give us. That's what he does give us here. He can show us what doesn't work, and then he can encourage us to accept the days and to try our best to trust God in them. And he leaves us there. And I wonder, is that enough? I want more. Um, And so I'm glad. (laughs) What am I glad about? I'm glad that Ecclesiastes is true. It is true. I mean, you can get a long way on Kohelet's wisdom. Okay. Uh, M. Scott Peck, do, you do any of you know him? He's a psychiatrist. He wrote a book called The, the Road Less Traveled, which is essentially Kohelet's wisdom. And it's actually a really good book. Uh, like, it's totally worth reading. And it just starts off by saying, Life is hard, life is difficult. And, like, the sooner you learn to accept the difficulty of life, uh, the better, like, the better you will be able to navigate this world of Hebel wisely and well. So, so there is a, a certain kind of wisdom to just saying, embrace it, embrace it. Um, but Ecclesiastes is not the whole truth. Um, when we turn to the Bible's bigger story, uh, especially the New Testament, what does the, the, the Christian story, what does um, the Christian faith tell us in the face of suffering? Um, Ecclesiastes is true. And so there's a lot of what Kohelet says that the Christian faith just wants to say yes and amen to. I mean, the Christian faith wants to say yes, there is a temptation almost always to try to explain suffering and to make sense of it. Like, maybe, like, think of all the ways we try to do this. Maybe we're suffering because God is... Uh, refining us, or or maybe we're suffering because it's a necessary part of God's plan, or maybe we suffer because it's just part of this package deal that we have to accept because it also gives us free will. Uh, or or maybe we suffer, but it doesn't really matter all that much because suffering is just this light, momentary affliction, and we're going to have an eternity of glory. Um, heaven is waiting. and But th- I think the best... I think the wisest voices in the Christian faith have have always cautioned us against those temptations and said, whoa, slow down, slow down. Um, Like those really are temptations to explain suffering that ought to be resisted. The Christian faith doesn't try to give some um, theological account for, for human suffering. It doesn't rush to defend the goodness of God in the face of suffering. It doesn't try to give some rational account for how God might be really good And all powerful in the face of horrendous suffering and evil. Um, It doesn't really speculate about um, God's reasons for allowing suffering. It doesn't guess about God's purposes in suffering as if we have like total access to the mind of God. So, what does the Christian faith do? It doesn't give us an argument doesn't give us an explanation of suffering. Um, it gives us this person. It, do, it does what John the Baptist does um, over and over again. It just points to Jesus and it said, look at this one. Look at him. Um, look at, think, think about Jesus with me for a second. When Jesus uh, was living, when he was on the earth, Gosh, I never say when Jesus was living. Um, <clears throat> this is what happens when I stray from the script.
0: Um,
1: <clears throat> yeah, I'm adding in a section to the sermon. Um, during his, his earthly ministry, what do we see Jesus doing in the face of suffering? Um, is he just like passi- passively accepting it, sitting back and just taking the world as it comes? No, he's not. We see him actively encountering suffering, engaging with it, um, confronting it. C.S. Lewis uh, once said something along the lines of, um, you know, a pantheist, someone who says that, like, everything is God, would say, hey, in the face of evil and suffering, if you, if you could just adjust your perspective, you would see that this, too, is God. This, too, is God. And Lewis says, oh, it's nonsense. He says Christianity is a fighting religion. Christianity believes that God created this world, and God loves this world, and so when he sees evil and suffering um, distorting it, corrupting it, uh, when he sees his creation suffering, when he sees his humans, these beloved image bearers who he loves suffering, um, God is grieved, like God wants to fix this. And we see Jesus enacting that and embodying it, um, fighting, fighting suffering. Now, do we see him fighting all suffering? we don't in his earthly ministry um like if you read back through the gospels and you see like all of these people who came to jesus with with pain and uh, you know a spiritual affliction um different sicknesses different diseases different physical ailments uh jesus um he would heal he he would he would he would take the the crook and the lot and he would he would fix it <laughs> he would make it straight um but for every one person that he healed, you know that there were like thousands who he didn't. Uh, and so even, even that can only be so much comfort. Um, the Christian faith says, follow the finger of John the Baptist and look at this one Jesus, not just um, at his ministry, But also look at his suffering. Look at his suffering. You know, whenever we confess um, our faith using the words of the Apostles' Creed, what do we say? We confess that Jesus suffered. Like He himself suffered. Not in some abstract way. He suffered in a very particular way, under the rule of Pontius Pilate. Um, Like His suffering can be dated. It's rooted in human history. It's not an idea. It's a fact. It's not abstract. It's not like this myth. Uh, we're talking about this particular human being this jewish man of the first century who suffered in very particular specific ways now what does that mean for us family i mean for one thing it means that jesus shares our suffering. that that um here that god suffers with us that god suffers with us in jesus we don't have a god who who stands far off and removed from suffering um, but we have one who enters fully into our human experience to be with us in the darkest depths of human suffering. Think about his life. He was born into extreme poverty. Uh, his first cradle was a feeding trough for animals. Uh, he was he was born, remember, under the threat of death. His parents were fleeing from Herod. Um, his His ministry was carried out under all kinds of fierce opposition not just from religious leaders, but also from, like, spiritual and demonic evil. Uh, He had no place to lay his head, we're told. He was constantly on the move. Um, His friends and his family didn't really know what to do with him. Uh, He lived this life of deep sorrow and grief. You can think of him weeping at the tomb of his friend Lazarus and weeping over the city he loved. Um, His ministry, like, just kept him in constant contact with human misery and sin. And in the end, he died alone, uh his closest community having betrayed him and denied him and abandoned him and, and so um the author of Hebrews reminds us that that when we look at Jesus, uh, we don't have this high priest who is like far off and removed and unable to sympathize with us, unable to identify with us, but we have one who who is actually um exactly like us in every way except without sin. And, and one of the things that reminds us is that uh, Jesus doesn't stop being with us in our suffering. It's not like he stooped low once and then withdrew. It's not like he, he dipped down into the mess for a little while, but now he's just free of it all. Uh, no, eternally... God has decided to be God with us in the depths, in the darkest, most painful, most horrendous depths of the human experience. God is there. Um, Jesus shares our suffering. He still shares our suffering. Uh, This is what it means for God to be with God with us. Um, But that's not all that Jesus does, family. He, he shares our suffering, and he also bears our suffering. He's not just God suffering with us. He is God suffering for us. Um, like, he takes our suffering, and he makes it his own. He he suffers for us in our place. There's a way, I think we can, like, there's a way in which Jesus suffers instead of us. Uh, because he suffers unlike any human being has ever suffered or ever will suffer. And... and we see that when we look to the cross because he goes alone there. Like at that point, all the disciples had turned and and run. And if you had been there, you you would have run too. Like he alone absorbs the wrath of humanity against God. And he alone bears the wrath of God against human evil. And he bears the horrible consequences of all of our sin and all of our rebellion. So much so that the Apostle Paul can say that, um, and I don't even know what Paul meant exactly. Like, what did he mean when he said that this one Jesus who knew no sin became sin? That's how much he suffers um, for us. Like, he, he, becomes, he becomes the sin. And he, he bears it with him up onto the cross, and then he bears it with him down into the tomb And I think he just leaves it there. And he does that, family, out of love for you, and out of love for me, and for the world. And so, gosh, that hardly answers any of my questions about human suffering. Uh, But what I hope you're hearing is an invitation that goes beyond the invitation of Kohelet not to try to escape from your suffering, not to try to explain it, but to uh, embrace this person, Jesus. Um, embrace him uh, not because it's useful, <laughs> uh, but because like he loves you. <laughs> because uh, this puts you in the arms of the one who promises that like nothing, absolutely nothing, none of the Hebel, None of the hurt, none of the sorrow and suffering will separate you from his love.